if you're if you're training specifically for mountain bike racing, I think probably having roughly a quarter or more of your total training time in the week on single track on technical trails is probably a good idea. And then from that, the biggest thing that people ask is, okay, but it's so hard to stay in zone on trail. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast powered by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Sabin, and this week we're talking about whether you should neglect polarized training during a race-specific training phase, and also how you can workshop improving your technical skills without deviating from your training plan. Today's show is also brought to you by Flow Formulas. In case you missed out on their Flow Formulas Black Friday and Cyber Monday deals, head over to flowformulas.com today to pick up any of their various products and use the discount code IgnitionPodcast10 for 10% off your first order. As always, if you like what you hear, please share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. And if you have any questions for the show, drop us an email at matchboxpod at gmail.com with email titled The Matchbox Podcast, or head over to Ignition Coach Co. and fill out the Matchbox Podcast listener question form. All right, let's get into it. Okay, so last week we sort of ended on this question, but we didn't we didn't quite get to it. So we're going to start here. This is from Kyle. So Kyle says, quick question here. When planning out your season with the four-week blocks, assuming you're only doing one-week tapers, would you schedule a race for the end of the fourth week being the recovery week and use that as your taper? On the same note, for A-priority races where you might not necessarily need a two-week taper, should you schedule your last build block to end a week early anyways to build in a cushion for time potentially lost to illness or injury? And should you not need the cushion, is it okay to continue on doing three, three and a half to four weeks of build before your taper instead of a typical three-week build before recovery? So Kyle's kind of talking about when you're planning out your season okay, and you're trying to build out your optimal training blocks and where to slot in your races, where, where is the ideal place to put those races within those, you know, call it four-week blocks? And if it doesn't line up perfectly to where like you can't control the race, but you've already got your blocks set in place, is it better to extend that training block an extra half a week or full week? Or should you just put the race on like the beginning of the next block? Um, I mean, I I think we touched on this in like not the last episode, but maybe two episodes ago, a couple episodes ago. Yep. Where I'm always putting, if I can help it, I'm always putting races at the end of the rest week which I think is getting to the root of his question. Uh, Also on two week versus one week tapers, I'm almost never prescribing two week tapers at this point. And I think we discussed that on that podcast as well. What about, what about some of you guys? Um, I don't know. I, I don't think I've thought this much about that. (laughs) I think I just kind of do my training and where the races fall, they fall. But but like Dylan's race schedule, like kind of advocates for this because he has gaps between his races. For a lot of like crit racers or cross racers, the once racing starts, it's it's almost like races every weekend. Especially we talked about this before. Like crit racing, you can crit race almost every weekend and not get burnt out. But if you try to do that with these gravel races, it you're like you're on a short short leash because um, they're just so much more taxing. So I think like you can pick and choose a little bit more how you maybe arrange your training around your racing when your events are spread out like that versus like once the race season starts, you're kind of like in the race season. So you kind of just have to roll with it. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I definitely I think I'm with Dylan on like if it's an important race, 
I would say put it at the end of a rest week so that you go into it at least a little bit more fresh than than you would in a typical race. But other than that, if it's not a super important race, I just kind of let them fall where they fall. Yeah, and then he was then he was asking about should you build in a buffer week? So yeah, so, so that's kind of what I wanted to, to touch on the most here. Mm. Um, you know, because we've we've kind of touched on some of these other aspects of the question, but you know, in like laying out your your season, how do you account for the the variables of the unknown? So you know, you're inevitably inevitably going to probably get sick at some point throughout the season. Uh, hopefully, you don't get injured, but if you get injured, you know that might be a setback. Do you guys factor that in and like you know prepare as if there might be a week or two buffer in there, or do you just kind of lay it out optimally and then adjust on the fly if things come up on the fly my thinking is like we'll cross that bridge when we get there (laughs) Mm -hmm. like i don't know i i'd rather i'd rather go about the season thinking we're going to be healthy all season than always thinking well you're only one you're only one bad meal from a sickness or something you know like i'd rather stay optimistic and think it'll go smoothly yeah i don't know what training you would allot to that two week buffer had you not needed it. It just seems like it would throw things off a bit. And then going back to the big picture of this question, it's always hard for me as a coach to answer this because it's always, there's all, there's no blanket program for everyone. And I feel like with this question, it's, well, it depends. Do you feel better carrying some extra fatigue into a race, which sounds like carrying fatigue into a race what but like for some people having some training in the legs works a bit better than too much freshness so i think it it comes down to the individual um but definitely on board with with dylan like two weeks is is way too much because you you also have to account for the fatigue of whatever event you're doing and if it is some ultra endurance event then you might need a full week after that to recover um, then you're giving up too much training in the grand scheme of your whole season. Yeah. I mean, I will, so yeah. I will say that for just as an example, my own schedule, I've got three months of base training that's going to end with a rest week leading into mid South. And I've never, I have never built in like had a built in sick week in case it happens but it's not a bad idea because almost every winter I get sick at least once. So I I can actually see the logic of building in a sick week and you don't know when the sick week is going to come, but just as an example with my own schedule, if if it's if there's a 70% chance that there's going to be a sick week in my base season somewhere, it w- it actually would make sense for me to uh, maybe start my base training one week earlier so that I can account for that. I, I actually do see the logic in it, but I'm saying I've never actually done it. <laughs> yeah. And, and then, it, you know, if you get to that two weeks before mid South, you know, or whatever your a rate first a race is, what do you do at that point? If you haven't gotten sick, right? It's like, have an, have hey, like we'll do extra I week ex- of training, yeah. extend it for a half a week and then do a half a week, you know, less taper or more taper. I mean, it it gets, you know, it gets a little bit nuanced there. Uh, I think, you know, maybe if you're a month out, you can, you can kind of like Drew's talking about, like you cross that bridge at that point. Um, But yeah, I, I, I've never, I've never really factored that in for any of my athletes or myself. I mean, stuff happens. Like Uh, it's bike racing, like you crash, you get sick, like 
one time Dylan didn't go to a race because his car wouldn't start. So he just didn't go to a race. Wasn't that right? Like your car just wouldn't start. So you're like, yeah, oh, whatever. I'm just, I'm just not going to go. Well, it, was more, <laughs> like, it was more complicated than it wouldn't start. But yeah, yeah. They, essentially my car didn't work and I couldn't go to the race. But it's like that stuff mm-hmm. happens. Um, and I think I'm not saying it's not, a, I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying, uh, you know, I don't know. I, uh, I just kind of roll with the punches. You can't, you can't plan. You can't plan for everything. Right. But I am a big fan of fate favors the prepared. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. I'm kind of on the fence on that one. Yeah. Fortunately for me, it seems like I always get sick on my rest weeks anyways. Yeah, there you go. Like, I don't know if it's just like the, you know, it's like your, your body's like has all this built up, you know, fatigue and it's making adaptations. And all of a sudden, like once you let go of all of that fatigue and stress, like, I don't know, for whatever reason, my body just like usually breaks down at that point. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just luck. And but, uh, you have a kid. I think once you, you know, have a kid, your rate of getting sick, like oh, well, at least doubles. Yeah. I think I got, that's what it used to be, I guess. Now I just get sick whenever. Yeah. Cause <laughs> I get sick. I get, I got sick more in 2023 than I think I ever have in my life. Cause I, my kid is like playing with other kids all the time and stuff and whatever, you know? Yep. So it's just part of yeah. life. It's all right. Building up that immunity. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so move on here. So we got totally worth question it. here. This I'm not, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I'm just want to make sure, make sure that that's clear. I love my yeah. kid. No, you're just, you're just, again, you know, alluding to like things happening. Yeah, like exactly. That's the, life. There's, there's more in life than just this bubble of, of bike training and racing. Yeah. Uh, okay. So this one's from Peter. Uh, hi guys. Huge fan of the podcast. My question is about the potential conflict between two major training principles that you guys talk a lot about. 80-20 polarization and race specificity. I have an event next summer, the Triple Bypass in Colorado, that involves three one-plus-hour climbs, which I will try to ride at a high tempo or sweet spot. Now, the principle of race specificity suggests that I should be mimicking that effort in my training. So let's say I do several Saturday rides in the trainer where I build up to three-by-one-hour tempo or sweet spot intervals, approaching three total hours in that zone. That should mimic the effort of race day, minus the altitude, of course. But if I have another one-hour hit, you know, high-intensity interval training workout earlier in the week, say VO2 max, I am doing about three and a half hours of quote-unquote high intensity during the week. On an 80-20 model, that would mean I would need around 14 hours of zone two riding to keep the 80-20 ratio, which would equate to 17 plus hours of training per week. Even if I didn't do the hit interval, I'd still need a huge amount of zone two to offset the ratio, uh, probably around 15 hours of training each week. Seems like a lot of riding to do both for both the rest race specificity rule and the 80-20 rule. I can find the time to do a big Saturday interval ride that mimics the race, but I would struggle to find the extra 15 to 17 hours in the week. Any thoughts on how to best prepare for events with long, steady climbs like this? Thanks, Peter. Yeah, so I think he's maybe doing his math a little different there. Um, when you think about 80-20, 80-20 is like 80% endurance, 20% high intensity, and high intensity would be over your FTP. And he's adding that three hours of sweet spot slash tempo slash threshold from the one race simulation workout as if it were high intensity. And I would put that more in like a pyramidal category. So there's like, it almost be like there's a middle, a middle zone, which if you're thinking strict polarization, which Dylan can go in a hole, you know, go watch my YouTube videos that I did on this. Um, <laughs> like if you're saying strict polarization or strict 80, 20, 
that middle zone almost like doesn't exist. It's either high intensity or endurance. And that's what, that's what uh, Peter is saying when he asks this question. But I think his approach should be more of like a pyramidal where maybe it's like, I don't know, majority, like large majority of his training is still endurance, but you can still do a little bit of pyramidal and then a little bit of high intensity. Um, and I think doing that three hours of like tempo at tempo slash threshold is within reason. Uh, any more than that, I would start to say that's probably like too much. Um, cause that's like a lot, that's a lot of tempo or threshold. Like you probably can't do that much threshold, but I mean, I, I will say that if, if this guy is riding what it sounds like 10 to 15 hours a week total, maybe, uh, he doesn't say what his, what his current volume is, but, but he, he said that he says 15 let's, is a lot. Let's assume he said 15 is a lot, yeah. right? So we could assume. Yeah. So let's assume roughly 10 hours. If he's doing what did he say? Three hours of tempo max. Yeah. That would be like, yeah. His longest. So be a, a one, one yeah, long I mean, ride a week a where he built up to three hours difficult tempo. workout to recover from. <laughs> right. That's an extremely yeah. difficult workout to recover from. Um, I mean, I don't know if he's done that kind of training in the past so that he knows that he can recover from it. But, uh, I think that probably what you may find when you get into that sort of training is that in what he's talking about is the, he seems, it seems to him like the 80, 20 ratio off is off because it's so much time spent at intensity. And I guess what I would say is that I tend to agree. And I think that what you may find is that it's actually pretty difficult to recover from the amount of tense of intensity that you're setting up for yourself right there. Um, especially, but he should, he should only do that three hours of tempo workout. He should probably only do that like once as like, so like most of his, most of his workouts would be less than that. And maybe he does that once like two or three weeks out from the event as like a final Mm -hmm. prep. That's what I would do. And then that would be your, that would be your biggest workout of the whole block so then so then on a typical week he is following 80 20 and there's no problem but like you can do three hours of tempo you can't do three hours of like true high endurance like i think what i've what i've you mean threshold like over threshold like you can't do usually you can't do more than 30 minutes of vo2 in a workout like yeah after that it's almost like impossible like i've, I've never been able to do more than yeah, like 30 I mean, minutes i guess what i'm getting at is that he in his mind he's like oh man if i do this race specific workout and this more intensity i'm doing the math here and it's not adding up to 80 20 like i don't know about that i i agree it's not it's not adding up to 80 20 and i think that you will find it difficult to recover from yeah and and it's okay to like break that principle yeah i mean you don't have to follow 80 20 perfectly but yeah maybe you don't want to break it every week but like if it's if it's like hey i need to do this race specific you know simulation ride three weeks out from my big event like that week might not be 80 20 but that's okay because you're you're that's your race specificity Mm -hmm. what you don't want to do is like do that for three months straight thinking like oh i'm building in race specificity every single week because that's going to over fatigue your body you're, you're doing way too much work week in week out and you're not going to be able to recover from that um you might not even be able to make it to the start line on that because you're just doing too much yeah. um so he, i think i think that's kind of what you're getting at when he talked about this event i consider that more of like a mock or this training ride i consider that as like more of a mock event 
like y'all were saying, like do that two to three weeks before the event. And I looked it up and the bypass doesn't happen until July. So when I hear race specificity, I feel like that's a whole phase of training that happens much closer to your event. So that's not even something I would be doing now. It's, it's November. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and for, for Peter here too, you know, since his specific event here is going to be just a lot of time, at tempo and endurance, you know, probably not going to be spending a ton of time above threshold, hopefully, uh, especially it sounds like Peter doesn't come from altitudes. There's that whole, you know, aspect of accounting for the altitude here, uh, you know, might, might be a decent candidate for maybe not like true reverse periodization, but somewhat like kind of like a reverse period periodization where like your, your race specific stuff is you're focusing on more like tempo and threshold, uh, but you don't want to just completely skip out on the VO2 max training in the lead up to that. So like maybe you do that, you know, the VO2 max blocks be well before, you know, maybe in February or March, and then you kind of reverse periodize it to where your your race specific efforts are more tempo and threshold oriented. Like he talks here about how he's doing a three hour tempo, tempo ride, but then he also has a hit workout earlier in the week where he's, he says, save VO2 max. Like I don't, I don't know that I would be doing VO two max in the same week that you're going to do three hours of tempo. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I, I would want to have you focus on VO two max for a block of training, so you can really get the adaptations from from that energy system, and then move into that like tempo or threshold training. Yeah, that's a good point. I've never done VO two and tempo unless it's the same workout and I'm mixing them, but I've never right. done like a dedicated tempo and dedicated VO two workout in the same week. Yeah, I mean, I with my athletes, I really try to refrain from mixing in too many of those different uh, like energy system focus focus workouts mm-hmm. uh, into one block. You know, it's like if we're going to hit VO two max, like we're going to just focus on your VO two max training. Um, you know, for this block. Now, once you get into that race specificity, it changes a little bit, but VO two max is not specific to the triple bypass here, so that really shouldn't be part of your race specific preparation in the final month. Anything else to add here? Uh, I think that was good. I think so. All right. Uh, we'll move on. Get at least one more in here. Uh, so this one comes from John. Uh, so, hey, Matchbox Squad. Love the podcast. I've been a big fan from episode one. Wow, that's, that's a lot of episodes. Uh, thanks for answering my sillier questions on the Bonk Bros. Oh, nice. He's listening <laughs> to both shows. Uh, I'm in my late 20s, have began mountain biking five to six years ago after graduating college and have about two to three seasons. Uh, it's a two or three, uh, of cross country and cross country marathon racing under my belt. I've been working with the coach this past season and have seen my power numbers improve through structured training, but I do a lot of my training on the trainer or road bike to stay in the correct power zones. My local XC race series wrapped up in the fall and I had a mid pack and I had mid pack results. Part of these results were fitness related, which I am still determined to improve. But looking at the power files in my competition, I have seen some of the riders that are putting out similar averages and normalized powers finishing a few minutes ahead of me in the races. To me, this indicates that there is a technical skill or race craft discrepancy between me and them. I'm sure there are lots of other riders like myself who see their lack of technical skills in one piece of of, is one piece of the puzzle holding them back from the top of the podium. So I have some questions about technical skills. What drills slash training should I or any rider do to improve technical skills like cornering, descending, having confidence at faster speeds, navigating technical sections like rocks, roots, sand, etc., 
in cross-country mountain bike or other cycling disciplines. Uh, how can an athlete balance training off-road where the terrain requires more variable power with performing structured intervals in zone two training? How much time should be spent training off-road versus on the road? Uh, when is the best time of the season to focus on skills? Is this the off-season or the base season uh, or closer to an A race? And what are some of the race craft skills slash techniques that can be developed? Are there any principles or tips that you have for racing cross-country or other disciplines? Thanks for making a great podcast that has the cycling community uh, really benefiting from. Best, John. Another long one, but this is a good question Thanks, here. John. Yeah, this one's fun. It, he didn't happen to say where he's from, is he? Did he? Be uh, John did not put in here where John is from. Yeah, I'm curious Why? as to is that, what, uh, so, does so that determine if access, you suck at yeah, what you suck at your technical no. skills. Like if you're from Kentucky, you're <laughs> no, just like, gonna suck at technical skills because there's no good there's no good <laughs> mountain biking in Kentucky. You would think that well, would I mean, you? maybe <laughs> yeah. So I think what Kaylin's trying to get at because John mentions that he spends a lot of time on the trainer, yeah, or uh, training on the road. So it's like. Right. Maybe questioning <clears throat> Caitlin, like mm-hmm. that, why why are you spending so much time? Good, yeah, so that's a good question. I'm, I'm all for doing stru- structured intervals on the road. You don't even have to do it on your road bike if you want to get there. I think that there is such a thing as being used to the position of whatever bike you're racing on. And there are people who train mostly on the road who find that they have a harder time putting out power on a mountain bike and vice versa. There are people who train mostly on a mountain bike who say that they have a harder time putting out power on a road bike. Um, so I, you know, maybe you want to do some of your intervals on the mountain bike on the road, just so you're used to the position. I don't see anything wrong with that. Um, and then when it comes to endurance rides, uh, I, when I'm training for mountain bike racing, I mean, I'm mostly gravel at this point, so I, I do less mountain biking. But when I was training specifically for mountain bike racing, I would say probably two or three of my endurance rides in the week would be uh, on the mountain bike. And usually for me, that that doesn't mean all trail. That means I would probably ride the road to the trail, do some gravel, do some mountain biking. So you know, if you were looking at the percentage of training time in a week that was on trail, it might be, I don't know, 30%. Um, but I think that probably having, you know, roughly if you're, if you're training specifically for mountain bike racing, I think probably having roughly a quarter or more of your total training time in the week on single track on technical trails is probably a good idea. And then from that, the biggest thing that people ask is, okay, but it's so hard to stay in zone on trail. Um, and I agree with that. And part of that is fitness. I mean, people with a lower fitness have a harder time staying in zone on trails because it's harder to go up a steep climb at 100 watts if that's your zone two than it is at 200 watts if that's your zone two, just as an example. Um, but I mean, you can stay in your zone two on trail. It is possible. You just have to get very comfortable with going very slow on climbs. And there's nothing wrong with going that slow. Yeah. So let's, let's talk a little bit about like, so, I mean, you're talking about like mixing your time between training on the road and training on the, on the mountain bike on trails. Let's talk a little bit about like where and how John or others could be incorporating skill specific work into their training. Like what days do you do those on? What might that look like? 
Uh, and let's assume that John or anyone else has access to some form of mountain bike trails, you know, some, some single track, it doesn't have to be world-class single track, but let's assume there's, you know, at least a couple miles of single track at their disposal to work with. Yeah. When I was doing more mountain bike stuff, there were certain intervals that I could do on trail and certain intervals that I wouldn't do on trail. Um, and it would like, those workouts would be somewhat adapted. Like, so a lot of times what I would usually do on a trail would be like race effort because there's, you can't sustain power on a, at least where I live. The The trail is so up and down and turny and twisty that like you can't just, you can't look at your power and sustain threshold for 20 minutes. It's just not going to be as clean as a road workout. So if you're trying to get that clean cut workout, then, which I think is good sometimes, then you should do it on the road. But other times, like he's talking about, you should do maybe a threshold block on trail where, yeah, your, your power is not going to be sustained at threshold, but maybe your heart rate is sustained at threshold, but you're also like, you're, you're working those skills because getting on the trail and riding endurance is one thing, but getting on trail and riding fast is a whole nother thing. That's why I tell all my athletes who do cross to do a pre-ride lap at speed because a cycle cross course rides totally different at speed than it does when you're pedaling easy. And the same holds true for mountain bike. And I think when you, when you go faster, that's when you're really going to start to like gain those skills that you need for a race. So there has to be times when you're riding yeah. a trail fast, if that's your goal. Yep. Yeah. Doing threshold yeah. Or, or VO2 efforts on trail is really going to help with trail efficiency. And that's probably where he's lacking. He, John mentioned um, he's seeing these guys that are, that are, you know, putting out similar power to him, but finishing two minutes faster. So those workouts will definitely help with that. But I wanted to say to going back a little bit here, you know, we said a quarter of your training should be done on the mountain bike, but like if he's in a place where this time of year he can't, I mean, that's totally fine. You know, being on the mountain bike more kind of goes into what we were talking about earlier as far as race specificity. So the more you can do on the mountain bike closer to the event, I think the better. Um, Does the Zwift have a mountain bike option? The, can't you just ride mountain bikes? <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> I Doesn't think they can do that. I think they do. Think, yeah. <laughs> you can get skill, skills points too. <laughs> totally. And then another good, if you want to get the best of both worlds, like get, get yourself a set of burner tires and do your, your mountain bike workouts on the road. So you're on the mountain bike, but you're doing those intervals nah, on the just road. Just use the same tires. So that way you can hop onto the trails whenever mm -hmm. you want. <laughs> That's true too. All right. I want to, then, I, do, uh, <clears throat> in, it, I do them. I, I mean that kind of seriously. Like I, I see a lot of people that will have a training set of wheels or tires and then a race set of wheels or tires. And if you're not used to riding those race wheels and tires, like it, it's going to handle totally different. So like I get trying to save your nice tires for race day, but like just put some new tires on when race day comes around, but like you should still be used to those, those same tires. I think I, I think I understand people saying saving nice wheels for race day more than I understand people saving nice tires for race day. Cause That's tires true. are, yeah. I just mean tires, yeah. tires are you, relatively inexpensive. I, I, you know, somebody's, somebody's yeah. going to get mad that I say this, but tires are a relatively inexpensive bike part. Wheels are <laughs> <Right> a <now. laughs> relatively very expensive bike part. So, yeah. But on a mountain bike, I would argue 
you know, you, you go from a 2000 gram wheel set to a 1400 gram wheel set, like that bike rides completely yeah, different. Yeah, I, so if you're not used to I, that, I, I mean, agree. I agree. But I do understand the logic of people trying to not trash. Just, their just get, get some wheels with the lifetime warranty <laughs> and don't got to worry about it. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, uh, what, you know, what I was going to say too is, I mean, it sounds like John here races primarily, he says, cross-country and cross-country marathons. So it sounds like he's just racing, you know, on the mountain bike. But for everyone else out there who maybe does multidisciplinary racing, I I would echo kind of what Caitlin's talking about here, where the closer to your race, you're trying to be on that specific platform. So like for me, if I have a, if my next race is a gravel race, the couple weeks or month leading into that, you know, between races, I'm going to be primarily on my my gravel bike. And then, you know, as soon as a mountain bike race comes around, I'm trying to spend more time on the mountain bike, just so I'm kind of getting used to those platforms. And I find it's, it's easier for me to adapt if I'm just riding that bike consistently than like just switching between the two constantly. Um, when I'm constantly between the two bikes, it's almost like I never really get comfortable on one. It's like, I'm always just kind of like adjusting things or feel like I'm having to make adjustments. Whereas like, if you can just spend, you know, a couple week block where you're just on that one bike, uh, that to me is how I've, 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 I've found my body to adapt the best. Um, and then it, you know, it, it helps with some of those bike specific handling skills too. John, here's a question yeah. for you. Do you have a, do you have a lift access like downhill bike park? Oh, who has that? A- Come on. Nobody, <laughs> nobody has that Dylan. We're not talking about his house. At his, at his house. That, but people who live in States with actual mountains, that's a, that's a thing that they have. <laughs> wow. You're talking about doing your work up, up the, no, no, no. the climb. So, I mean, he could do his workout on the mountain, but I'm saying if he's, if he is really, if, if skills is really something that's holding him back, like he said, he's seeing people with a lower power output finish higher than him for some reason. So there's clearly, he needs to work on his skills. Maybe his fitness is enough for the podium, but his skills are, are giving him a mid pack result. So it's really his skills that he needs to work on. He may consider going to, a downhill bike park and having a day where he is, I'm I'm not saying riding to the top. I'm saying he's using the lift so that he can get in as many runs as he possibly can and taking a whole day to just work on his downhill skills. Yeah. And what I would, what I would say along with that is, you know, if you're going to do that, uh, I, I would strongly consider hiring a skills coach while you're at it for, you know, for that day, maybe you do an hour session at the beginning or in the middle of the day or something uh, you know, our three hour skills clinic you can go to. Um, but that way you're getting even more out of it. You can, you know, learn some of the technique and then try to apply it yourself while you're still there. Um, or maybe you travel to a, a, a skill specific clinic. We we've talked about putting on, you know, an ignition training camp that would have some skills components to it. Maybe we'll still do that next year. We don't know yet, but you know, going to something like that, I think is going to be really beneficial because what you need to do is you, you know, just spending time on the trail. Like if you're, if you're, if you already have bad habits that you've kind of instilled in in your riding if you're just doing those bad habits more and more and more it's just going to compound the effect you need to be around other riders who are highly skilled and you can watch them ride with them learn from them uh you know a skills clinic is gonna be you know kind of one-on-one or you know with a handful of of athletes with a coach uh, where they're going to show you techniques and you can apply those right away and and that's what i would say is like if you're investing the, the resources and you know monthly coaching which i think is a great start uh, but you know that it's skills that are holding you back at this point, at least to some extent, 
you got to invest in that too. You know, you can't just neglect that because you can get as strong as you want. You see this all the time with guys that come over from the road or, or girls that come over from the road uh, and don't have the skill set to, to to handle themselves with the other, you know, higher class off-road riders. And they just get left in the dust, like literally. So, you know, you, you, you can't neglect that aspect. Uh, you know, we, we've seen tons of riders that have come over from the road who now are doing well in, in these off-road races, but it's taken them years and tons of time to adapt and learn the skills. Um, you know, he's, t- he's talking about uh, certain tactics or, uh, what do you say, race craft skills or techniques. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of that does come just from from racing, but you're not going to learn that until you're getting further and further up into the race and you get to see those those race skills or race crafts being deployed firsthand. You know, if you're kind of stuck in mid-pack, you're, you're just going to be experiencing what's going on around you in those races. Racecraft, mm-hmm. to me, sounds more like a road, a road racer uh, dilemma. For example, if, if, this, if we had mm-hmm. the same question, but it was a road racer, and they said, I'm getting to the end of these races, and my competitors are putting out 30 less watts, and they're placing higher than I am, I would say the the problem is probably your race craft like you don't know how to efficiently draft in the pack and somehow you're expending a lot more energy because you're spending more time in the wind or you're not you're not maneuvering in the pack correctly and i would say that you know the solution there would be maybe to find a local group ride or do more c priority races where you can practice time in the pack but this is not a road racer this is a mountain bike racer so i think that the issue yeah. is less race craft and more skills likely well, I would consider yeah, I mean, there are certain like racecraft skills, like when to pass and like how to pass efficiently. So you're not burning a ton of matches every single time you pass someone. It's like, you know, where, where can you, you know, you got to scout out in advance, where are you going to make your passes? How can you do that? Maybe you try and pass two people at a time. So you're getting kind of more bang for your buck. Um, or just things like Caitlin was talking about, like trail efficiency. You, you know, that, that comes with some of the skills and, 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 uh, you know, technique training where it's like, learning when to make those accelerations, uh, you know, make the most out of those accelerations. You know, like you, if you're accelerating into a tight corner, you're, you're basically like, it's a wash. Like you're not getting anything for that. It's like, you want to accelerate out of corners or maybe you accelerate off the downhills or you, you know, like you have to like, that's some of that just trail efficiency just comes with this, the skills. Um, not so much like race craft specific though. Mm-hmm. And I, when I heard racecraft, I think the racecraft of XC racing is being able to put out power over these climbs and then maintain your your it, um what's the word I'm not sanity but uh your handling through the descents um handling those descents efficiently because you can ride a section of trail and like be absolutely on it and like know every corner be like i can't go any faster than that like i know this this descent like the back of my hand and then you pair that put that at the back side of a, a high intensity interval like a high intensity climb and you ride that thing like you've never ridden a bike before and it just feels off because you were so on the gas and now you're you're just like tapped and then you have to handle your bike and hey manage the people around you too and like make sure you're getting through that safely and efficiently um so like one of my favorite workouts huh sorry guess when the most injuries happen in in basketball the final quarter Mm -hmm. of every game because that's when everybody's the most tired and they're not as focused 
and mm-hmm. being tired means you make more mistakes. But like what you're saying, Caitlin, is like handling your bike when you're tired in the middle of a race is harder, mm-hmm. right? Like it's yeah. really hard to like stay super focused on a technical downhill if you just like attacked the guys behind you because now you're like your heart rate's pinned and you're cross-eyed and yeah, yeah. No, I think there's real truth to that. So, so Caitlin, you you were going to give John a couple workouts that you like to do. Yeah. Um, any, like if you can find, if your trail system has like a fire service road or like um, just a gravel or a paved climb and then immediately following that, you can dive onto trail and come back to the bottom. Like that's my favorite place to do mountain bike workouts. So you do them up the climb and then your recovery is descending like a tech, somewhat technical trail. Um, yeah. And- yeah. And Caitlin, like some of the workouts that we've, you know, that I've had you do is like trail hill repeats, right. Mm-hmm. Where you're actually doing, you know, a three to five minute effort up the trail climb mm-hmm. um, and then flipping it and turning, you know, going back straight down. Uh, and what I like about doing that is, so most of the time I actually don't love when an athlete goes out and does like sessions of a f- certain feature and they're just like trying to like create that, they call it like muscle memory. Um, most of the time I don't love when, when an athlete's doing skill sessions that way, unless it's like a, there's a certain technique deficit that they need to overcome. Um, because then you're just kind of only learning it in one application. I like when athletes mm-hmm. can broadly apply a skill. But in this case here, what I like about doing the trail hill repeats is by that third, fourth, fifth interval, like you know that trail well enough that you can like completely lay off the brakes in sections that you on the first descent maybe were like rubbing the brakes a little bit. Because you're like comfortable with the trail, you're getting more in tune with like what it feels like to descend when you're in that state of fatigue. Um, and then like, the cool thing is, let's say it's a four minute climb and a minute 30 descent on the first one. If you descend in a minute on the, the fourth one, you get an extra like 30 seconds of rest at the bottom too. So there's like kind of that incentive as well. Like you get to like noodle around for a few minutes before you like get to, you know, have to, you know, go back up again. Mm-hmm. Um, but I like that because it, it helps to create a little bit of that like flow state for someone where like you, you get to like comfortable with the trail, you get comfortable with how you feel descending that specific trail in that state of fatigue. And you get to just experience that like flow state where you're just like the bike's just moving underneath you and you're just kind of flowing with the trail. Um, but you don't, you don't always get that uh, if you're, if you're not doing it on a repeated section. Mm-hmm. Do you know who, one coined, other thing. do you know who created the the whole concept of flow? Come on. Uh, question. Matt Fitzgerald. C- C- Caleb. Uh, <laughs> you guys don't know this guy's name. That's one of the coolest names I've ever heard. Flowenstein. No, it's Mahali Cheeksent Mahali. He, Say that again. <laughs> Mahali, <laughs> Mahali Cheeksent Mahali. He's the guy that <laughs> co- like created the whole flow state concept. Really? Yeah. I've got his book on my bookshelf <laughs> because I'm so cerebral. There you go. <laughs> that's main. That's mainly why I wanted to say that. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> well, there we go. We can we can end the show on that. That's how you. No, I had something else I wanted. to No, I wanted to add something else. Some more cycling right, philosophy for those who are still hanging in there. Thirty nine minutes into this episode, um, I think, and this is where I go when people talk about like what he's asking. My, and this is more of a philo- philosophical, like how you think about it. This isn't going to be any practical advice. But what we're talking about is your oneness with your bike. And maybe this sounds crazy, but they've done research like brain brain scans when people like start to use tools 
And so like when somebody picks up a tool uh, for the first time, it's like foreign and it's whatever, like they can barely use it. But the more you use tools like a, like an artist uses a paintbrush or a mechanic uses a wrench, the more your brain starts to connect that tool as if it were a part of your body. So like a, a mechanic's wrench is almost like an extra finger or something like it becomes a part of your body. And so I, I take that and apply it to cycling. And like the more time you spend on your bike in those tricky situations where you have to maneuver and dodge things and you're creating this oneness with your bike and your brain is starting to see your bike as an extension of your body. And that only happens from riding your bike. And from doing it for a really long yeah. time, like it takes long, like to create things in your brain, like patterns like that takes a long time. So you've got to be cycling is one of those yep. sports where it's just like, it's not for the faint of heart. Like you have to be dedicated to this sport for a long time to see significant gains. Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, like going back to Dylan, you were talking about, you know, 25 to 30% of your training should be done on your mountain bike on trails. If you, you know, if you can, of course. Uh, and I think what that does is helps to just uh, make some of these brain pathway connections like you're talking about here. The Drew, brain where, body like, bike. The connection. bike just becomes yeah. brain body bike yep, connections where go. like the bike just becomes an extension of you. Mm-hmm. And like you see it with like, you know, the the kids these days, like, you know, a Riley Amos or um, uh, what's the name? Um, uh, Riley B- or Bjorn Riley, mm. um, like, you know, two of these like XC kids that are like, you know, are you 23s, I guess, but like their skills are just like insane. Like the, the stuff they're doing, like even in like XC racing, like is, is just, it's sick. And to them, like the bike is just like, mm-hmm. it's just there. Like they don't even recognize the bikes there. They, they can make that bike literally do whatever they want. It's cause they've spent so much time on that bike playing around on it. And I think that's something to like, incorporate in here too like on those zone two days like you're talking about dylan where like you're going out and just kind of like doing your trail riding at an endurance pace like don't forget to like just play around on your bike too you know pop off that berm a little bit you know do some you know skid into some corners skid out of some corners like you know do like have some fun on it and play around on it and don't just like ride the middle of the single track and you know nice and slow like robotic and just like go through the motions like that like you got to like play around with it a bit and, you know, cause part of it too, is like learning how your bike works and like how it, it's going to respond in like certain scenarios. And like, eventually like, that's when you, you get to the point where like, you know, you see guys that are like, you know, both tires locked up skidding, but like, they're totally in control. It's because like to them, it's like, they're not, they're like the skidding is just part of what they're trying to do. Or like they're, they're so used to that phenomenon that like they, they know exactly like when that tire is going to hook up to like give them the traction they need. Uh, of yeah. course, you're like still going to crash every now and then, but, um, but like I, I would definitely incorporate more like playfulness on the, on those days than anything. I think John mentioned specific skills too. I know, I know, I heard cornering. So like, set your intention before each endurance ride that you go out on the mountain bike and be like, today I'm just going to focus on cornering, and every corner I take, I'm going to over exaggerate the the bike lean and do the whole flashlight and the belly button thing like. I want my hips too. You never heard that one? <laughs> Pretend you never have a flashlight heard. in your belly button and you want the flashlight pointing down the trail so your hips move outside the bike. That's a good one. Um, I'm, so, I'm all and, self-taught when it comes to mountain bike skills. Yeah, I don't think I've ever been to a skills clinic. 
That's not a bad thing well, either. I, I'm not encouraging injury, but I will say invest. <laughs> if, if you really want to get better at cornering, invest in some knee pads, some elbow pads, and you're not going to find the limit until oh, you go we'll over see. it. Oh, see. Nah. Just, just <laughs> so, scrape those knees up. Come on. <laughs> so you got to find, yeah, find that limit of, of traction and... uh yeah, it's if really you, just if time. If you on the show bike. up to your lo- if if anybody yeah. showed up to my local cross country mountain bike trail with knee pads and a full face helmet, I didn't say you needed a full face. What a but... goofball! <laughs> I'm making fun of that guy uh, for sure. But, but yeah, I mean, going back to I mean, you know, spending more time on the mountain bike for sure, and you know, just you have to just be intentional. You know, the skills don't just come. I mean, mm-hmm. they will eventually if you dedicate enough time to it. But like, you have to be intentional if you want to accelerate those those learnings. And riding in a variety Sweet. of terrain. Okay, yep. I'm done. That's it. <laughs> All right. Cool. We'll we'll wrap it there. Forty five minutes in. Wow. Good one. Long one. All right. Thanks, guys. See ya. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to matchboxpod at gmail.com with email title the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn more about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go! I've never driven a rally car before, but I'd imagine there are a lot of similarities between racing rally cars and racing bikes. Both involve speed, skill, and suspense. But one big difference is the navigator. The navigator's job is to communicate with the driver what turns are coming up, the severity of those turns, and any obstacles to look out for on course. With the help of the navigator, the driver goes faster. As athletes, we too need a navigator. This is where the coach comes into the picture. Like the navigator, the coach helps guide the athlete along the right path. When it's all said and done, the coach helps the athlete go faster. To take the analogy one step further, I'd bet the best navigators are those who used to drive themselves. Because of their own experience behind the wheel, they're better equipped to help the driver. This is what Ignition Coach Co. is all about. All of our coaches are elite level racers, and that makes them better coaches. They know how to train, how to prep, how to win, how to lose, and how to stay focused through it all because they are in the midst of that pursuit right now. Here at Ignition Coach Co., we believe that coaching and racing go hand in hand, and it's our goal to fuse those two things together. We'd love to connect you with one of our coaches. Sign up for a free consultation today. Ignition Coach Co., developing coaches, connecting athletes.